Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and your all-around hiring guru. And I love to find great people, thought leaders, influencers, and have a conversation with them and bring those conversations to you to help you find that next best career choice. So today on the show, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mike Armour, founder and managing principal of Strategic Leadership Development International, author, speaker, and executive coach. Dr. Armour's goal is to help motivated leaders perfect their communication, trust building, and people skills, and help individuals nail their most vital responsibilities. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. My Mike. My joy, my joy. I've been looking forward to this ever since we talked about it I several know. weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> it has been so interesting, and we'll kind of dig into this a little bit later, but the reason that you and I got connected, mm-hmm. well, I'm gonna let you tell our audience, how did we get connected? We got connected through Success North Dallas and the mentorship program for young executives. I am so excited about this mentorship program. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thrilled that we finally got it off the ground yep. and that you applied to be one of our mentors mm-hmm. because you're amazing. And I hooked you up with one of our amazing young executives. Oh, yeah, he is tremendous. He is, and he also sits on our board. I'm just gonna shout it out there, Drew Donahoe, we're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's, Truly, I mean, what we're doing here with Success North Dallas, and I, and I, reason I want to talk about this is because it's all about the networking. Mm-hmm. It's so important. So, how long have you been a member of Success North Dallas? Uh, joined just before the COVID uh, pandemic hit. Oh yeah. So I made maybe four or five meetings before we had to make the adjustments for the shutdown with the pandemic. Yeah, that was so weird. It really was, wasn't it? Yeah. So the day before. Success North Dallas, I typically, because I volunteer mm-hmm. there, we would go on Tuesdays and we'd go set up. And I will never forget, like, I got a text from Bill Wallace, the founder, and he said, there's no setup today. There's no Success North Dallas right. tomorrow. And I went, what? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. Only time in their history, I guess, that's been the case. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And mm-hmm. it was for probably about... I think we shut down for about eight months that's before right. we mm-hmm. went back. But when we went back, we were very cautious. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I th- one of the first questions I always ask is how we got connected and because I want to teach people the importance of always reaching out and always looking for those opportunities to make new friends. Right, right. So, That's exactly right. Yeah. And part of what has happened in Success North Dallas, as you know, there's a very close connection between Success North Dallas and C-Suite Network. Yes. And I'm a podcaster on C-Suite Network and Jeffrey and... Uh, is, uh, you know, somebody who's continually advised me as I developed the podcast over four years. And uh, actually, it was on one of the uh, virtual meetings on the C-Suite Network that I met Bill, and Bill said, you need to come to Success North Dallas. So those two experiences of networking are interwoven. Yeah, and just a teaser, Jeffrey Hazel is going to be coming on our podcast uh, later 
uh, next month. Yeah. So, right. yeah, he's brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, never had a small idea in his life, I don't think. No. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about that. He's not like me. We were talking about earlier, and we'll get into this later, too, about how I have these big ideas, and I just throw them behind me and say, somebody pick that up. <laughs> not him. He's like, I have a big idea, and this is how we're going to do it. Right, right, you know, so, right. Okay, so we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about you today. Okay. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Okay. Well, I was fortunate enough to get into pretty demanding leadership roles really early in life, in my 20s. Uh, enough so that by the time I was 37, I was already a college president, one of the youngest college presidents in the United States. I did not know that. And so at a point late in my 50s, I began to say, what do I want to do at the next stage? And because I had been in so many leadership roles over the years, I thought what I would like to do with the next chapter of my life was to be in a position to pass along what I had learned from my leadership experience to others who were emerging leaders or maybe already established leaders but needing more assistance in getting where they or their companies needed them to go. So I began laying the spade work, uh, doing the spade work and laying the ground in uh, the mid-1990s and started my firm, Strategic Leadership Development International, in um, the year 2001 and chose those words in the name purposefully. Uh, I wanted to work with decision makers at the strategic decision making level or those who were being groomed to be in those positions. I wanted to work with leadership more than just general executive coaching. I wanted to develop the leadership side mm -hmm. of executives. Uh, I wanted to then carry that message internationally because I was already doing work in Russia, Ukraine, certain parts of Latin America, and so I wanted to take the principles of leadership that apply anywhere and take them into the international arena. So I've been doing that now for 21 years. That is amazing, <laughs> and you know, it is so important that leadership understands what leadership is, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you do what I tell you to do, not right. necessarily. Right. You know, I talk about VIP a lot on this um, podcast, which who mm -hmm. sponsors the podcast and it's also who mm -hmm. I work for. And I was able to have a conversation today with one of our managing partners about, you know, my role within the company without any fear of repercussion. Right. You know, my role has changed organically throughout right. the years. And it was just like, hey, we need to, you know, address this. And they're like, okay, well, now that you've brought this to me, let me go think about it and I'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. And But I never once worried that having that conversation would lead to me being fired. Exactly. And one of the things that drew me into this emphasis was that I was beginning to see by the late 1990s that we had blurred the words manager and leader. Mm. And we were using them interchangeably in corporate America, and there were a number of factors that contributed to that. And yet, at a deep unconscious level, we all realize there's a difference between leadership and management, and that difference that we recognize is reflected in our language. We talk of leading people and managing people. We talk of managing budgets and managing inventories. We would never speak about leading a budget or leading an inventory. It's and very true. we were losing that distinction. What is it that you're doing when you're a leader as opposed to when you're being a manager? When you put on that sombrero, why, why do you put on that sombrero instead of the other? And it's not that leadership and management are opposed to one another. They're like two pedals on a bicycle. One carries the load at one moment, the other carries the load at the next moment, and the art is knowing when to shift from one to the other in the way that you approach your task. 
That is probably the best analogy for the difference between the two I've ever heard. That was really good. Well, thank you. Thank and shifting between, and I'm a, I'm a cyclist, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get it. In fact, I was riding my bike on Monday. That's what I did for the 4th of July. Well, one of the things I say in my, my leadership training workshops is you can ride a bicycle with one pedal. Uh, I was cycling around White Rock Lake one day and one of the pedals broke. And I discovered, yes, you can ride a bicycle with one pedal. It's not very graceful, it's not very artful, <laughs> and it's not very efficient. But there are people out there who are just good enough managers. They are able to build successful enterprises, but the enterprise is always lacking that leadership piece mm. because they don't have the second pedal on their bicycle. I love that so much. I'll tell you just a quick story about White Rock Lake. You know, when you're coming down the dam and you get that yes, hill and yes, it's going yes. really fast, fast, uh -huh. fast, and you're like shifting up to the highest, hardest gear that you have. <laughs> right. I was doing that one day and my, my wire snapped oh. and stuck in that <laughs> highest gear. It was miserable trying to get to the bike shop after that. So, <laughs> so glad you're a cyclist and you get that story. <laughs> it was so bad. I was like, what's happening? How come I don't have any tension here, you know, there on my bike? It was crazy. So, okay, you focus primarily on communication skills, people skills, and trust building, right. okay? Why are these three skills so important to have in the workplace? One of the things that I discovered early on was that it was helpful to have a lot of models and a lot of metaphors through which I communicated my message to mm -hmm. people to whom I was introducing new ideas. And one of the metaphors I developed is the doorway to leadership. In fact, I'm right now writing a book on that topic which book number is this? Uh, this will be number 12 or 13. I can't, oh I've lost track. <laughs> I'm just trying to write one. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. But, but uh, the way that I picture the doorway to leadership is that it is framed by three skill sets. Okay. People skills, communication skills, and trust building skills. The people skills and the communication skills are pretty obvious as to why they are there. Why the trust building skills? Well, coming back to that manager you were talking about a while ago who tells people, do this, do that, do mm -hmm. something else. One of the distinctions between management and leadership is that leaders within an organization may not hold a position on the organization chart. Every complex organization I know has opinion leaders and thought leaders within the group that do not appear on the org chart. Okay. Okay. And yet they get a lot accomplished because of their influence. They have such credibility. They have such authenticity. They are recognized as having authority rather than being an authority. And it is the influence of having uh, of being an authority that allows them to get things done. And so that being the case, how do we have influence to get things done? It's because people trust us. So if I'm going to lead mm -hmm. as opposed to manage, I cannot ultimately fall back on my management title to get things done. I have to influence people. And the way I influence them is maximizing the trust that I build with them. So I'm about to come out with the second edition of my book, Leadership and the Power of Trust, in which I examine that thesis more fully based on my own experience in turning around a bankrupt college, not because I had the resources, but because we were able to build the trust within the community that people would stick with me during the two to three years it took to turn things around. Now, that being said, where you've got the, the framework around the door that are these three skill sets, 
But leadership also depends on two char uh, personal characteristics, or, or personal qualities, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, character and credibility. Yes. Harvard Business School has come to the conclusion from their studies, validating what Warren Bemis said years before, just from his anecdotal studies, that 80% of leadership effectiveness is a direct or indirect product of, of, of character. And so the, the doorway to leadership has this framework of skills, but it hinges on leadership. And if it's going to have the influence it's got to have, the other hinge is credibility. Mm. So leaders are about building and maintaining credibility and being consistent in the character that they uh, evidence in the things that they do uh, on a daily basis. I think that is so important. In fact, I think it's so important because, you know, we do these happy educational hours for our mm -hmm. successful North Dallas young mm -hmm. executives. Mm -hmm. The topic this month, mm -hmm. and you may want to come and just watch yeah. this, reputation management. Yes, yes. Because it's critical. It, it really is. And it has to be managed continually. Warren Buffett said it takes 20 years to build a ref reputation and 10 minutes to wreck it. Yep. And so one of the keynotes that I'm working on right now will be entitled Lights Up, It's Showtime. Mm. And I think what leaders, particularly in very senior positions, have to remember is that they are stepping on stage every morning. The lights are coming up. It's showtime. Yep. Be on your best. And one of the things that I had to learn the hard way is that once you step into very senior positions, you have to give up a lot of things that you always did that don't reinforce the message you want to send when you do them from that position. Uh, when I became a college president, I was at the time Dean of Students uh, at Pepperdine University and an executive assistant to the president on special projects. And when he, when I told him that I'd taken the job, uh, he asked to spend a half day with me down at one of the restaurants on the beach in Malibu. Uh, in his words, to tell you all the mistakes I made in the first six months so you don't have to go remake them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> the second thing he told me was, you're going to have to watch your sense of humor. Because he had worked with me long enough, he knew that I made little cynical, sarcastic comments. And he said, you're going to find that when they come from the mouth of the president of the college or university, they have a weight they didn't have before. Mm. So my first day on campus, the business manager is taking me on a tour of the facilities, showing me all the work that's being done to get ready for the fall uh, uh, class coming in. And we're over in the men's dorm and the men's dorm has every worker on campus painting and repairing things that are done. We go from there to a new set of tennis courts that are being, brought, uh, being built. And we've got to walk between the administration building where my office was and the field house. It's a rather narrow uh, passageway, serpentine walk through there <laughs> with a beautiful fountain in the middle. And along by the field house, the dandelions were in abundant display. And as we walked by, I just said, huh, I guess the dandelions won that battle and thought nothing of it. Oh no. Two hours later, I looked out my window and half of those people who had been painting dorm rooms were now out there on their knees pulling up dandelions. And I thought, oh, that's no. what he was talking about. Yeah. That's what he was talking about. It's the lights up, it's showtime. And you've got, you can't be on stage, the person that you are backstage. Oh, that is so interesting because that's not how I tend to 
react and act when I'm in a room because I, you know, mm. and we'll talk about it, this. I keep saying that it's a teaser, people. It's a teaser. Um, <laughs> the core values. One of my number one core values is authenticity, and that means mm. that you know the way you see me today is the way you're going to see me at the next right. Success North Dallas right. meeting. It's going to be the way you see me if we run into each other at a restaurant. And what I'm hearing is that I. You, you can still be authentic, but mm -hmm. carefully authentic. Maybe. Carefully, you've got to continually think, why, how will the person who doesn't know me well watching this interpret it? The people who are close to me, who, who have had a lot of experience with me, will give me the benefit of the doubt, even if I cross a line right. I probably shouldn't have crossed. It's the people who only know you marginally or don't know you at all, who are likely to misinterpret it. So learning how to think about what I'm doing from the perspective of the people sitting in the audience, not the people on stage, is really a key piece for us in, this, in very senior leadership roles. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna have to think about that because that's <laughs> a little different. You know, I've been stepping into some new roles myself and, right. I, and I want to really be cautious about how that's perceived yeah. and, and while not from what I've seen, myself. And from what I've seen you doing, I think you're doing it very well. Okay. And it's because, coming back to your core values, your basic core values are heavily built around building connections mm -hmm. with people in the world around us. And so you've got a sensitivity to people that runs at an unconscious level and causes you to naturally do things that many people who are not strong in that area, I have to coach to do it because they don't have the people skills, that side of the doorway uh, framed all that well. Okay, okay, interesting. And thank you for that. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> so I wanna talk about your business for just a second. It's called Strategic Leadership Development International. Right. You are truly international, right? Right, I, we've, we've done work across East Africa. In fact, I had a subsidiary in East Africa for a number of years, oh, wow. headquartered originally in Kigali, Rwanda. Uh, we then pulled back to uh, uh, to uh, uh, Kenya, and we're based out of Nairobi. I have a business partner who's still there. Uh, I've done a lot of work in Ukraine and in Russia and, and the Balkans throughout Croatia and those uh, uh, southern European areas. Uh, and I've done work in Mexico and other places, mm -hmm. and some in in Asia. I've done a lot of work in Asiatic Russia and Siberia, and work in uh, South Korea. So. It is genuinely an international. Truly outreach. international. <laughs> okay, so but locally, you've been ranked one of the sixteen best business consultants in Dallas um, by expertise for mm -hmm. six years mm -hmm. now. I mean, what makes you stand out from everybody? I know what makes you stand out from everybody else, <laughs> but you tell us what makes you stand out. Well, you know, I really don't know. Unlike a lot of things where you end up in the top this or that for some fee that you've paid. This one was one that just blindsided me. They did their own study, they reached their own conclusions and just sent me an email and said, you know, uh, you, you've been named to be in this position. And so I have to take at face value what they said. And uh, I don't hold myself out as a great business expert, but I do really understand the mistakes that smaller companies early in their history mm -hmm. make that then become real problems for them later on. And I think the strength that I bring to uh, any developing company, in fact, I'm working with one just starting today down in East Texas that has got some very talented people. They have fallen into a great market where they're filling a niche that's badly needed, but 
already some of the things they are doing will work for them at this size. It won't work for them at the next level. And so I think a lot of it is understanding the evolutionary cultural process that companies go through as they evolve from one stage to the next and helping people see what's coming and start laying track for it mm-hmm. uh, now so that they don't get there and find that they're, they're running off the track because now then what worked before won't work at this level. Well, and what I'm hearing you say is that you help them build scalable businesses. Yes, exactly, so, exactly. Okay. Perfect. All right. So I'm really curious. This is what I've been alluding to. I want to talk about your core value index that Mm -hmm. you do. Mm -hmm. So kind of walk us through what is this assessment? What's it used for? And then let's talk about me. (laughs) (laughs) Be glad to. Um, The core values index is a standardized profile uh, that was developed by a man who started off early in his uh, post MBA years serving as a temporary CEO in turnaround organizations. Uh, Large companies that would hire him to come in as a temporary CEO to snatch them away from the bankruptcy they were on the edge of. And he was very successful at that, had a lot of turnovers, uh, turnarounds, uh, and was able to turn things in a direction that was very profitable for them after a long struggle with being profitable. But he was a very principled man, and one of the things that he concerned, became concerned about is how many times in rebuilding a company he put the wrong person in the wrong place and that mm. person didn't work out. And so he took off two years to answer the question, what is it I did not know about these people that had I known it, I would have never put them in this position. Okay. And it was from that two years of research and study that he developed what is today the Core Values Index. It's a short little profile of 36 questions, but it's amazingly precise in measuring something that no other personality profile measures. We have behavioral profiles like Mm -hmm. DISC and Performax and Colby B, things like that that measure how people perform or behave. Then we have beneath that personality profiles, the Myers-Briggs type indicator being the, the granddaddy of them all and a lot of others that have come along that are, are something off spinoffs right. of it, okay? They're measuring the personality behind the behavior. But what the Core Values Index is doing is measuring the innate drives that bubble up through the personality to give us this behavior. Okay. And there are four drives that it is, uh, is tuned to. One is the drive to get things done. Okay. The second is the drive to build connections with uh, people and the world around us. The third is the drive to grasp things at a deeper level. And fourth is the drive to develop capability and know-how. If you think about those four drives, every organization needs all four of them. Absolutely. Okay. And we all start off in life with those four drives evident as soon as we start making somewhat independent decisions for ourselves, even just what I'm going to play with today and how I'm going to play with it. With my grandchildren, by the time they were two or three, I could see all four of those innate drives evidencing themselves in their lives. But as time goes by, we find that we succeed more if we use one or two of those drives as our strategy as opposed to the others. And that reinforcement means that we come into adulthood in most cases, 90% of the cases, having learned to solve problems, 
to deal with issues, to respond to the world using one or two of those drives, not so much the others. But the higher we go in leadership and management, the more we've got to be able to draw on all four. Okay. Because I'm dealing with an organization that needs leadership in all four arenas. The issue is that because these things are so central to us, in your case, the connection with, with people in the world around us and to understand things at a deeper level, those drives are so strong for us that we find our fulfillment in those areas, not so much in the other drives. And what fulfills us energizes us. True. And because it energizes us, those become our default positions to go to for everything that comes up by way of a problem or a challenge. And before long, what we're doing is we're building a team around us that looks a lot like us. Instead of a team that is strong in those areas that are not, my, not the drives that I naturally gravitate toward. Uh, my, my most influential mentor while I was early in my career, if he said to me once, he said to me hundreds of times, we all have a flat side on our wheel someplace. The sooner we recognize that flat side and build people and systems around us to compensate for it, the sooner we'll be successful and the more successful we'll be. And so that's really what I'm doing with the Core Values Index. I'm saying, where the, where's the flat side on your wheel? What are you doing to build a team and systems around you to compensate for your flat side? I love that, you know, and I've only recently, I won't say recently, but past couple of years, and I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, recognize that weakness within myself. Because mm -hmm. before I'd be like, no, that's not right. I don't, I get <laughs> things done, you know, <laughs> I can do anything. Uh -huh. But I really recognized, and I think that my report, because I, you know, I uh -huh. took that uh -huh. core values, speaks to this, and it's okay. Like what you're saying, yes. it's just, you know, I have these big ideas. I do love to make connections, uh -huh. but I don't like to implement the ideas. Yes, I want somebody else to do that, and well, it's so, okay. You see, the quadrant, your second strongest quadrant, is the one that, in core values index terms, we call the innovator, and innovators as the name suggests, are full of ideas, mm -hmm. but they get their fulfillment from generating the solution, not implementing the solution. Correct. So what happens is they come up with the solution, they start implementing it, and as they are in the midst of implementing it, out of the corner of their eye, they notice this other problem over here that's begging for a solution. And they think, boy, when I get this done, I'm going to go solve that problem. And back to, now I got to stick with, now wonder how I would solve that. <laughs> and before long, they're trying to drive this car and look through the windshield of this one over here, okay? Uh, it became very important for me once I realized that weakness in me because I'm very strong in that innovator space to always make the number two person around me someone who met two or three qualifications. One is they were dogged about getting things done. Uh, they had the strength of ego that they would not hesitate to walk in and say, boss, the wheels are about to come off because you're off dealing with this and not sticking with the execution, yep. get back to work. And that is, those number two people have been more responsible for my successes than anything that I brought to the game in my judgment. I, I love that, I love that. And I have a really good friend of mine that kind of holds up my flat side, you yeah, know? Right, right, right. Because I'll be like, hey, what about this? And she's like, here, 
it's done. You know? <laughs> yes. And I love it. Yes. I love yes. that. Shout yes. out to Karen yes. Gray there. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk a little bit really quick because I know you're one of our great mentors with our Success North Dallas Young right. Executives. Right. Right. And I just, I'm curious, you know, what is it like for you to be a mentor and how has it benefited you just as it's benefited the mentee? I think one of the things that being a mentor over the years has done for me, in addition to paying back to the system the blessing I had from having some good mentors who weren't professionally related to me in any way, they were just good friends who took me under wing and said, let me share with you some of the things mm -hmm. I know. Mentors are people who show you the ropes. You know, I've been there before, let me, let me show you how this works, sort of like the president who said to me, you know, watch your humor. Yeah. I've been there. I've yeah. made that mistake. You don't need to make it yourself. And then I promptly proceeded to make it myself. <laughs> he knew what you were going to do. <laughs> he did. He was a very wise man. But anyway, uh, the, the mentoring experience for me compels me because so much is at stake with this individual to get very clear in what I am telling them that will shape their career. And clarity is something that's one of my most important pursuits, mm -hmm. in, at least in my self-perception. Uh, when I finally came to identify my purpose in life, uh, I word it now as to help people succeed by giving them clarity and insight. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't help people develop clarity if I don't have clarity myself. It's one of the reasons I write so many books is because writing forces me to get clear on things that I think I'm clear on until I start trying to put them in print, okay? And so one of the things that, that doing, being a mentor has helped me do is to continue to struggle to uh, be as clear as I can to someone who, A, is not nearly as experienced with the language, the vocabulary, yes. or the context as I am, and probably is a little bit hesitant to say, I, I don't understand that. Uh, some will, but many will not. Yeah. And so I've got to be sure that without insulting their intelligence by being simplistic, I nonetheless make it so clear that they grasp it and can run with it on their own. I love that. You know, and one of the things that I've noticed as, you know, because I sit on the advisory board for the young executives. Right. And whenever I go do something to show them how to do it, they especially with the networking and like mm -hmm. setting up events and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they look at me afterwards and they're like, how did you do that? I'm yeah. like, I just showed you how to do it. Yes. You don't be afraid. You ask questions and you tell them what you're looking for. The worst they can do is tell you no. Right. So, and, and, and part of the challenge of being a mentor and being a coach, they're different. They're different professions they are different approaches mm -hmm. to helping people succeed. But one of the challenges is, that the hardest thing for us to remember is what it was like not to know. Yeah. Has anyone ever said to you, hey, let me show you how to do this. It's real simple. And then they got in, get into their description and two minutes into it, it's already so far over your head. To them, it's simple. To you, it's a graduate education. It's everything to do with technology they with can't, me. <laughs> they can't remember what it was like to know yes. absolutely nothing. And so that's part of that clarity for me is where was I in my understanding of the world and people and organizations when I was this age at this point in my career, I've got to come down and I've got to mentor at that level. And so it's a growth experience to me on clarity. 
I love that. I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon. I don't know if you remember when I interviewed you for the mentor mm, yeah. for Success North Dallas. Do you remember what I told you? I was like, I'm gonna, you're gonna be my mentor. <laughs> I was, it was that was the hardest thing for me to do was to give you to someone else. I was like, you're gonna be so good for me. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well, we are almost out of time, so I'm gonna ask you our VIP questions. Are you okay. ready? I'm yeah. gonna challenge you just a little. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you take with you? Well, at my age, I would probably take the people I'm going to need the most for the years left. So I would probably, you know, the people I'm going to have to fall back on, you know. So I'd probably take my wife, I would take my doctor, and I would take my undertaker. Oh, <laughs> because if I'm on Mars, I'm going to need all three of those. Oh my goodness! Okay, <laughs> I'm not coming back home. <laughs> there you go, one way trip. So, what's one thing you do each morning to set your day up for success? Well, as we were talking before we came on the air, I got up this morning and started writing. Mm -hmm. I learned rather early, probably when I was working on my doctoral dissertation that I'm most effective at writing between about six and nine in the morning. Mm. And so I've developed uh, a routine of being at the computer, or at one time at the typewriter, fairly early, uh, working on something. And so I continue to look for writing opportunities to force me to write, because it's in writing that the metaphors start coming, mm. the models start developing in my mind, the language gets crisper, more refined. And so uh, what I do each morning is get up and get that side of me working first. Uh, that That's where part of my innovation comes from, mm -hmm. is that experience. And if I can get the energy charge that comes with an hour or two of really innovative work, then when I go do the things that don't give me energy the rest of the day, I've got that energy to draw on to see me through it. I love that. I love that. I, you know, one of the things, I, first I have my quiet time, but mm -hmm. then the very next thing after I do that, and it's usually a meditation mm -hmm. or something like that, um, is I go to my journal. Mm -hmm. And But I'm actually writing because mm -hmm. I find that's where I find my energy is when I actually put pen to paper. Yes, most people do. In fact, I was working with a woman last night that I was encouraging her to start writing out what I was asking her to write because there's a different neurology that runs when you're handwriting mm -hmm. and when you're typing on a keyboard. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's called double encoding. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> Are you impressed I know yeah, that? <laughs> you're, I, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be the last time I'm impressed with something you know. <laughs> okay, my last question. Well, yeah. next to last question for you. Um, if your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? Probably uh, something along the lines of, he spent his life asking where next? Mm. Because I've done a lot of different things. And I was really impressed as a young Navy officer on my first trip to Washington, D.C., when I walked by the, the U.S. archives and noticed that etched above it in stone were the words, the past is prologue. And I thought, what a wonderful view of life. I'm not going to wallow in the failures of the past. I'm not going to go back and li continue to live in the, in the warmth, the, the glow of the success. That's all prologue that's giving me some tools for whatever's next. 
And so all the way through life, I've had some great successes. I've had some colossal failures, uh, but I've always rolled into something else because where next? How can I take what I've got and go someplace else? So I'm actually right now in the midst of standing up something that may be the biggest undertaking of my life. Uh, you know, I'll know in about three or four months, but as I was telling a friend last night, I will either be very wealthy or I will be very broke, but I'm going to have fun doing it. There you go. It's because in the journey, right? That's right. It's in the journey. Yes. And so my life has always been where next? And it's taken me in directions that as a farm kid growing up in East Texas and a family that by any standards was dirt poor, I could have never envisioned. Well, I certainly am curious to see where next you go. Okay. And don't think you're going to get rid of me very easy. <laughs> so this has been an amazing conversation. I have loved every minute of it as oh, I knew I, I would. Have to. I have to. But, you know, I just have one last thing to say to okay. you. What's that? Dr. Mike, you are a VIP. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.